0: Hello, this is William Fink and this is Christogenea Internet Radio. Today is Friday, February 12, 2021. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening, I'm going to present part 22 of my commentary on the wisdom of Solomon, and this presentation is titled The Idolatry of. Of kings we've been talking about idolatry in the wisdom of Solomon for many weeks now as the ancient children of Israel had conquered the land of Canaan as it is described throughout scripture they themselves had eventually strayed and had begun to adopt the ways of those whom they had conquered so Solomon explaining this phenomenon which we considered to be one of the important lessons from history when we discussed Wisdom chapter 12, had begun to describe for his readers the patterns of idolatry, which in turn had led to the adulation of men. But in ancient times, the adulation of men led to the worship of kings, and men would ultimately be compelled to accept the idolatry of kings. Earlier in Wisdom, in chapter 2, Paul had illustrated for us a portrait of the wicked, whereby he described the desires of men who would oppress the righteous and make themselves the law, as they are portrayed as having exclaimed, let our strength be the law of justice. For that which is feeble is found to be worth nothing. So they would rule over the weak. In making themselves the law and oppressing the righteous, it seems that the next natural step in the development of tyranny is to acquire control of the minds of the people so that the tyrants can continue to rule over their lives. You can't really Control the people by force forever, but if you control what they think, you could have them in your hands for a long time. Believing what one chooses to believe is a privilege of modern liberalism. In ancient times, throughout much of history, men often had no choice in what they professed to believe even if they thought otherwise. So Paul and Silas were in Philippi in Macedonia when they upset some pagans who seized them and brought them, as we read in, I believe this is from Acts chapter 16. I actually didn't record it. And they brought them to the magistrates, saying, these men being Judeans... Do exceedingly trouble our city, and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being Romans. And the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes, and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid stripes, many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely." Being Romans, the men were required to believe a certain religion and to live by it. In that manner, the aristocracy and priesthood of ancient Rome held its held its grip on the functioning of the greater society. For many centuries in Egypt and Mesopotamia, kings understood the relationship between rulership and religion, and how their rule over the people was more conveniently facilitated by controlling the religion of the people. In the earliest Mesopotamian literature, it is evident that the first rulers were the priests of one pagan god or another. Early kings worked together with pagan priests to maintain control and control the people. So it seems that dynasties favored the god whose priests would best suit them or who had suited their ancestors, and they associated themselves with the god and its priesthood so that they could assume the perceived power of the god. The religious beliefs of the people were actually manipulated by the priests of the god in order to suit the rulers. An example of the relationship between ancient rulers and religion is found in ancient Near Eastern texts relating to the Old Testament in remarks on ancient Egyptian inscriptions under the subtitle, The Theology of Memphis, which is at the very beginning of the book on page four, where we read, when the first dynasty established its capital at Memphis, It was necessary to justify the sudden emergence of this town to central importance. The Memphite god, Ptah, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I don't think anybody knows how to pronounce it, but it's spelled with a -A P-T-A-H in English. So I will say Ptah. The Memphite god Ptah was therefore proclaimed to have been the first principle, taking precedence over other recognized creator gods. Mythological arguments were presented that the city of Memphis was the place where the two lands are united, and that the temple of Ptah was the balance in which upper and lower Egypt had been weighed. The extracts presented here are particularly interesting because creation is treated in an intellectual sense, whereas other stories are given in purely physical terms. That's the end of my quote. Those other creation stories are ostensibly older. But here we see that the pharaohs of Memphis had actually revised Egyptian religion in order to justify their own pretense to power, and therefore the pharaohs would ultimately rule over both Upper and Lower Egypt. So, as the story goes, Memphis was allegedly founded by King Menes, who was said to have united the two lands of Egypt. Although, in that particular aspect, the Hellenistic accounts are not entirely upheld by the archaeological record, which may simply be due to a confusion of some ancient names during the Hellenistic period. The menace of the Hellenistic literature may well have been the pharaoh known in the inscriptions as Narmer, but in any event the control of the religious narrative was evidently important to the pharaohs who sought to maintain control of the people. In many aspects, this pretext of control was further systematized in Egyptian religion. As we read on pages 5 and 6 of ancient Near Eastern texts, in footnotes explaining the theology of Memphis, that the Temple of Ptah at Memphis was called the Great Seat or Throne and the granary which kept Egypt alive. Right there we can see that the entire religion and control of the people was based on economic control of the grain. And then in another footnote on those pages... The rescue and, and the footnotes are basically at, and quite accurately summarizing what was gleaned from these ancient texts. The rescue of Osiris, the grain god, from drowning some god he is, right is given an explanation of the position of Memphis as the granary of Egypt. In the following context, one must understand that Osiris' son was Horus and that Horus was the king of Egypt. Hence, Horus was correctly located at Memphis. So where it says in the following context, it's describing these funerary inscriptions in the tombs of the pharaohs that were discovered at Memphis that legitimized their religion and their rule. The religion they created, which actually gave legitimacy to their rule. Here we must note that Horus was correctly located at Memphis in order to justify the rule of Egypt by the kings at Memphis, who are now known to us as the pharaohs of the first dynasty. So after we read in the text how it was that the gods of the Egyptians had come to Memphis, thereby legitimizing the rule of the kings of Memphis over all of Egypt, we see in the text that Osiris came to be in the land of the house of the sovereign on the north side of this land, which he had reached. His son Horus appeared as king of upper Egypt and appeared as king of lower Egypt in the embrace of his father Osiris, together with the gods who were in front of him and who were behind him. But even more relevant to this portrayal of the early origins of idolatry in the wisdom of Solomon, and perhaps even more amusing, is how the ancient pharaohs of Memphis justified their own idolatry, as we read on page 5 of ancient Near Eastern texts, and before I cite that, I should say as we've seen the religion being rewritten to justify their rule, now they will justify their idolatry. Thus it happened, citing the same ancient funerary inscriptions, thus it happened that it was said of Ptah, he who made all and brought the gods into being. He is indeed Ta-tenen, and the phrase is not translated probably because they haven't yet discovered what it means as of the time of the translation of this inscription. And there's a lot of that in these ancient Egyptian, Sumerian, and Akkadian inscriptions where certain words just aren't. It's just difficult to properly define them. Another word is ka, which we will see later on in the same paragraph. He is indeed ta-tenen, who brought forth the gods. For everything came forth from him, nourishment and provisions, the offerings of the gods, and every good thing. Thus it was discovered and understood that his strength is greater than that of the other gods. And so Ptah was satisfied. After he had made everything, as well as all the divine order, he had formed the gods, he made the cities, he had founded gnomes, or districts, or counties, if you will. He had put the gods in their shrines. He had established their offerings. He had founded their shrines. He had made their bodies like that with which their hearts were satisfied. So the gods entered into their bodies, and this is the relevant portion of this inscription, which I said was more amusing. So the gods entered into their bodies of every kind of wood, of every kind of stone, of every kind of clay, or anything which might grow upon him in which they had taken form. So all the gods, as well as their cause, K-A apostrophe S is the way it is in the text of ancient Near Eastern texts, it's spirits, in my opinion, the life force of the body that could be called the soul, whether you're speaking from the Adamic perspective or the... Animalistic perspective, perhaps, as w- so all the gods, as well as their cause, gathered themselves to him, content and associated with the Lord of the two lands, so basically, at Memphis, in the first dynasty of pharaohs, Egyptian religion, Egyptian mythology was rewritten to accommodate the rulers of Memphis. So they actually rewrote religion to accommodate themselves to justify their rule and to justify their will over the rest of Egypt. Yahweh, the God of Israel, condemned this sort of idolatry and forbid the notion that he should be represented by such idols. But while Solomon had described the beginnings of idolatry with the casual making of idols out of otherwise useless chunks of wood by a workman in his spare time, which eventually led to the more intentional manufacture of idols by workmen for profit. Here the ancient Egyptians had claimed that their gods had actually inhabited the bodies of wood, stone, and clay from which their idols were made. (laughs) And that... That their supreme god Ptah himself had created the shrines which contain those idols. Indeed, it is no coincidence that the wisdom of Solomon itself comes to life in a summary examination of the idolatry of Egypt. I'll bet all those little Mary statues in the Catholic Church—they weren't made by Ptah. They were made by. <laughs> they were made in China. <laughs> But that's a different story. So likewise, after the death of Solomon, Yahweh God had divided the kingdom into Israel and Judah. And Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, came to rule over the kingdom of Israel. He also understood that he could not control the people so long as they traveled to Jerusalem in Judah to worship Yahweh at the temple, which was under the control of the king of Judah. So we read in 1 Kings chapter 12, from verse 26, after Jeroboam had built his house in Shechem. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. That was his fear. If this people go up to sacrifice in the house of Yahweh at Jerusalem, then shall the heart of this people turn again unto their Lord, even unto Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they shall kill me and go again to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Whereupon the king, meaning Jeroboam, the king took counsel and made two calves of gold and said unto them, It is meaning to the people, right? It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt, meaning the two calves of gold. And he set the one in Bethel, and he put the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one, even unto Dan. And he made a house of high places. And made priests of the lowest of the people, because the scum of the earth seemed to become priests and actors. He made priests of the lowest of the people, which were not of the sons of Levi. And Jeroboam ordained a feast of the eighth month, on the fifteenth day of the month, like under the feast that is in Judah, and he offered upon the altar, so did he in Bethel, sacrificing under the calves that he had made, and he placed in Bethel the priest of the high places which he had made. If Jeroboam himself appears in his idols and sacrifices and appears to be worshipping them, the people will follow suit. So he offered upon the altar which he had made in Bethel the fifteenth day of the eighth month, even in a month which he had devised in his own heart, and ordained a feast unto the children of Israel, and he offered upon the altar and burnt incense. Surely Jeroboam did not contrive an entirely new religion, as the children of Israel also compelled Aaron to create a golden calf when they grew impatient at Sinai 500 years earlier. But just like the ancient rulers of Egypt and Mesopotamia, Jeroboam knew that he must control the religion of the people if he were to maintain his own rule over them. So he also appointed a priesthood which would be subservient to himself rather than to Yahweh. While the patterns of idolatry, as they were described by Solomon here in Wisdom, seem to portray a much earlier time in the history of man than the events concerning Israel in Canaan, or even Memphis in Egypt, the result and the consequences are the same. Then, as men eventually look to other men as the objects of their idolatry, ultimately they would engage in the worship of kings, either willingly or by compulsion. And that is what Solomon begins to describe here as we continue with wisdom in chapter 14. As wicked men thought to be a law unto themselves, they would also seek to be worshipped so long as they ruled. So men obeyed kings by worshipping gods according to the decrees of kings, or they worshipped the kings themselves, as the kings enshrined themselves as gods. So now we shall continue where we had left off in Wisdom chapter 14 with verse 16, which reads, Thus in the process of time, an ungodly custom grown strong, was kept as a law, and graven images were worshipped by the commandments of kings. This certainly evokes the beliefs set forth in those inscriptions of the pharaohs in Memphis. Today, this same phenomenon exists in a much more sophisticated manner, and rulers continue to control the religion of the people. In England, the state has controlled the Church of England ever since its inception. When an Anglican priest is ordained, he swears allegiance to the monarch, the king or the queen. So the Church of England has always preached a corrupt form of Christianity, which is subservient to the whims of the British ruling families. Similar to the situation which Jeroboam had faced, Americans saw the Anglican Church as an agent of the king, and many Anglican priests in America resigned their positions in the church during the American Revolution, while other Christian denominations in the colonies Became more influential. In the United States, where there was not supposed to be a king, but where there was supposed to be freedom of worship, the government has more recently come to control the churches through a mechanism which it wrote into the tax code known as IRS 501c3. While the churches do not ever pay income taxes, the income being in the form of gifts and donations. The government persuades and even now coerces the churches to restrain their teachings so that church benefactors may deduct the value of their gifts and donations from their own individual income tax liabilities. In that manner, to the degree of the tax liability on those gifts, the government is basically subsidizing the churches by the amount of taxes forgiven in the gifts of their donors in exchange for the obligation imposed on the churches to depart from sound Christian doctrine in order to teach things which are in compliance. Or to not teach things which are not in compliance with government regulations in spite of Scripture. There were 41 American states which at one time had laws against miscegenation or race mixing, two states that did not were Alaska and Hawaii, so they don't really count. They weren't made states until 1960. The other 48 states, all but seven of them, had laws against miscegenation. And if I remember this correctly, the seven that did not are New York, New Jersey, New Hampshire, Vermont, Connecticut, Wisconsin, and Minnesota, I believe. I have a little chart from, that I stole from Wikipedia that I'll include with this podcast. So all but those seven states had laws against miscegenation or race mixing. And while nearly 30 of the remaining states repealed their laws against miscegenation by the 1960s, Presumably, a single court decision in 1967 forced the last 16 states which still had them to repeal such laws, all of those states being in the South. In some states which never had laws against miscegenation, throughout their early history, miscegenation was not an issue. Miscegenation was never an issue in New Jersey or New York after the 1600s. In others, government policy had followed the policies of the dominant churches, and I'm speaking mainly of Pennsylvania and Massachusetts. It's especially true as such laws in those states were repealed at a very early time. But in most states, the policies of the churches were ultimately compelled to follow the policy of the government. Lately, churches such as the Southern Baptist and later-day Saints had expressly forbid misge- miscegenation, and now they accept it, even no longer considering it to be a sin, as if the church decides what's a sin and what's not instead of God, when in truth, God decides what's a sin and what's not. So we must ask ourselves, did the Bible change? It would be difficult today with the proliferation of written records for rulers to rewrite religion as they did in ancient Memphis. But the clergy which has cooperated with the rulers, have changed the Bible in their translations and interpretations of terms, which clearly refer and forbid. They refer to miscegenation and even to sodomy. They've changed their interpretations to accommodate the governments, while the Bible, New Testament and Old, clearly forbids sodomy. So even more recently, as the government has become more and more permissive of sodomites, so have the churches. Until 1962, every state had laws barring bestiality, sex with animals. And all but three had laws forbidding four-legged animals. I'm sorry. And all but three had laws forbidding sexual relations between men and even sometimes some types of unnatural sexual intercourse between men and women were considered to be sodomy. So they forbid all sexual relations between men and some states forbid some types of sex between men and women, labeling them all as sodomy. As late as 1962, only three states did not have laws against sodomy. And one of them's in, one of them's West Virginia, and the other two I really don't remember, even though I saw the chart this morning. It, it's, um, they're in the Midwest and the Far West. It's immaterial. I'll include that chart also. The states which did not repeal such laws as late as 2003, and it was a handful, were once again compelled to repeal them by another court decision issued that same year. So now, not only do the churches ignore the biblical fact that miscegenation is identified as a form of fornication in scripture, and that God forbids such fornication, but they have even taken advantage of archaic language found in the king james version and are beginning to deny that the scripture forbids sodomy at least in the form of sexual relations between men so in modern translations they are corrupting perceptions of scripture and of god by obfuscating the clear meaning of words which describe such forms of sodomy Just like ancient Thebes, the effect is still the same that the religion of the people is being manipulated to the advantage of those who would rule over them. Over 5,000 years, this has not changed. The Christian perception of Jews, who are a people accursed by Jesus Christ, by Yahshua Christ, as we prefer, and who were also accursed by Yahweh God in the Old Testament, is also a subject of the blatant corruption in modern interpretations of Scripture, which are being made, or which have been made, in order to suit the objectives of the rulers. Now, as we proceed with Wisdom chapter 14... Solomon describes the transformation from the worship of idols decreed by kings to the worship of the kings themselves. But while the language of wisdom describes these phenomena in a simple and straightforward manner, when they are observed in history, it is evident that they, are often, that they more often develop in a subtle and more complex manner. So it continues in reference to the worship of images by the commandment of kings. And we pick up in verse 17 of Wisdom chapter 14. Whom men, speaking of the kings themselves, whom men could not honor in presence because they dwelt afar off, they took the counterfeit of his visage from afar and made an express image of a king whom they honored. To the end, that by this their forwardness might flatter him that was absent as if he were present. And the Greek word spude, translated as forwardness here, is haste or speed, and therefore also exertion and even attention. So with some other differences, and because we would rather clarify the meaning, we would render verse seventeen to read, "He whom within sight, sight, he whom within sight, men were not able to honor, by dwelling at a far distance, modeling a view, they made a visible likeness of the king whom they honored, that, as being present, they may flatter he who is afar off through the attention." What is implicit here is the transformation from where kings had decreed that men worship certain images, as the pharaohs of Egypt had done, to people who instead worshiped images of the kings themselves, which is also evident in later Egyptian and then again in imperial Roman history while we will not discuss the Roman worship of the emperors as gods in detail here. We did so at length quite recently, in part 45 of our commentary on the Gospel of John, which was titled, Gods and Emperors. The Roman Republic had its images which were worshipped, for which Paul of Tarsus had criticized them in his epistle to the Romans. But in Paul's own time, Beginning with Julius Caesar, the deceased emperors were being worshipped as gods, and temples were beginning to be constructed and dedicated even to the worship of living emperors, which actually began in the time of Claudius. So once a man begins worshipping the works of his hands, there is no end to the escalation of idolatry and the efforts of rulers to control it or to be the objects of it. Now Solomon speaks in reference to those who would create the aforementioned images of kings. Also, the singular diligence of the artificer, or craftsman, did help to set forward the ignorant to more superstition. The Greek word epithet. Epitasis is, in the phrase ice epitassin here, translated as singular diligence. Literally, epitasis, a noun, is a stretching. But in certain contexts, it can also be an intensity, as you stretch to do something. Or describe an increase, an increase of intensity or force. Here it seems to play on the meaning of the word spudae in verse 17, which is haste, speed, zeal, exertion, or as we have translated it here, attention. We may accept the translation of epitasis as diligence, although we would translate the verse to read, verse 18, but in the diligence of the religion of the craftsmen. Even the ignorant were urged to devotion. Here we interpret the Greek word philotimia, which is literally a love of honor or distinction, or sometimes in a bad sense, ambition. We would interpret it as devotion, since it describes the image of the king as an object of worship. So in that same manner, Solomon continues to speak of the craftsmen who made that image, and he says, For he, peradventure willing to please one in authority, forced all his skill to make the resemblance of the best fashion. I'm sorry. The translation of this verse actually obscures the cunning of the artificer. So we would more literally translate this verse to read. For indeed, he perhaps being willing to please the ruler, expressed in his craft a likeness more beautiful, and that's a perfectly literal translation. Here it is apparent that the images of ancient rulers were very likely created to be more beautiful or handsome than the rulers themselves, as the artisans, had also sought to please the rulers. Now, Solomon explains the result of the manufacture of such images in verse 20. And so the multitude, allured by the grace of the work, took him now for a god which a little before was but honored. And the last clause of this verse may have been better translated to read, the man who was little honored before is now accounted an object of worship, accounted, or if you will, perhaps reckoned an object of worship. So while the people dwelling afar off from the the king had only given him a little honor Once an image of the king was set up close by to their own homes, which they could see much more often, they began to worship both the king and his image as a god. This once again elucidates the importance of the commandment in the Old Covenant law which forbids the making of such graven images, since the people are easily misled into the worship of those images or the men or other concepts that the images represent. Rulers must have known that Protestant Christians in America would never worship the men or or the idols of the images of men. They must have known that. So they set up a different type of idol that men do worship every damned day. Today in America, and in much of the world formerly known as Christendom, even if the people may no longer worship the images of men, they do indeed commit the same form of idolatry. However, they have substituted the image of a flag, which represents an ideal, a false ideal. And while they may even proclaim that Christ is king, they turn and pledge allegiance to the flag. Therefore, to paraphrase Matthew chapter 15, verse 8, While the people imagine themselves to draw near to Christ with their mouths and honor him with their lips, their hearts are far from him. Instead, they obey the government which their flag represents. And at the same time, they accept miscegenation and fornication and sodomy and all of the other sins which that government insists that they accept as their priests and pastors are now actually agents for that government, for the love of mammon. Solomon continues by describing the deceit of such idolatry. And this, we're in verse 21. And this was an occasion to deceive the world. For men, serving either calamity or tyranny, to describe unto stones and stocks the incommunicable name. And as far as I remember from all of the scripture and other literature that I've read, this is the first and earliest mention of an incommunicable name and the only one in scripture. I do not think that this is mentioned in any other book, either canonical or apocryphal. Now, of course, I could be wrong. My memory is not perfect, right? But this is the first time that I remember anywhere that this term is mentioned. Incommunicable name. So, we will dwell on what that means shortly. Today, while men pledge an allegiance the or I should say their allegiance to a flag, and imagine that it represents a nation under God, the government which the flag represents is absolutely contrary to the to the God with whom men think the flag might be associated, as in the ancient world where kings claimed to worship a god and associated themselves with that god in order to assume the powers of that god, they also ruled at their own whim. The god was an idol. The god didn't even exist. The god could not enforce his own will. So whatever the king said was the will of God, that was the will of God. Whatever the hell the king made up, just as solomon had described the wicked who become a law unto themselves if we today are ruled by men who are not obedient to god then we should know that we are ruled by men who stand in defiance to god and indeed we are ruled by men who despise yahweh god and his christ we are ruled by those wicked men who are a law unto themselves. And we pledge allegiance to a flag and to an ideal which are sheer idolatry. It's one nation under God, but it's not Yahweh, the God of Israel. But even this verse, we must translate this verse more literally to read. And this became as a trap in life. That's the literal reading where the King James has, and this was an occasion to deceive the world. I I don't know why they took those those liberties. I would rather have a purely literal translation and figure out the idioms for myself. And this became as a trap in life. That in the circumstances in which tyranny enslaves men, that the incommunicable name is bestowed upon stones and wood. So more immediate to Solomon's own context. Here we have an explanation, an ancient explanation, of a phenomenon which has been noticed by archaeologists and which has been misunderstood and even abused by the modern interpreters of antiquity. This statement by Solomon explains for us how the name of Yahweh, the so-called incommunicable name here, came to appear in such places as the base of a column built by Egyptian pharaoh Amenhotep III in the 14th century before Christ, which was perhaps about 80 years after the Exodus of Moses. And also, how the name was found in inscriptions dating as far back as the 9th century BC in Kuntele Arjud. And there's a maybe I'm not pronouncing that correctly either. <sighs> Kuntelet-Ajrud, perhaps there's a link here to a Wikipedia article because it was handy and easy to reach, (laughs) which was part of ancient Edom in the western portion of the Sinai Peninsula. The name of Yahweh also appeared in other places where it may not be expected to have appeared. Here we also have an explanation of a phenomenon, which was described by Paul of Tarsus who chastised the Romans in the opening chapter of his epistle to the Romans for having changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like unto man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. So the Romans corrupted the incommunicable name by their representations of Jove, which is the same name as Yahweh. When you understood that in Latin it was pronounced Yahweh, or perhaps Yahweh, or Yahweh or something similar, because we believe Yahweh, as we know the Tetragrammaton, is pronounced as Yahweh, but we're not necessarily correct about that. When it, if we could only hear the ancient priests pronounce it, and pronounce a lot of these other things and then start asking them questions. I'm sorry. This, it's never-ending. The inquiry into truth is never-ending. And none of us are ever going to have it all. But where we see the phrase, incommunicable name, at the end of this verse, that is often interpreted in a manner which forbids the utterance of the name of Yahweh, as the modern Jews also assert. That is not a correct interpretation of the Greek phrase here. To a onoma. Within the context of the Hebrew Bible, their interpretation is not correct. The word a is an adjective formed from a negated form of the verb koinoneo, and I'm sure that all of our listeners are familiar with the phrase coin greek it comes from the same word that's an adjective from an adjective formed from the same exact word coin in that instance coin greek or coin a greek meaning common greek right so koinonio coinoneo, the verb means to have to to have or do in common with, or to have a share of, or take part in a thing. So, something that is coinous is something that is common. It's something that anybody could get a part of. And all different races spoke coin Greek. But a akoinonatus, I'm sorry, akoinonatus is something which is not common. It's the opposite. That A at the beginning is the negated form of the word. There are plenty of examples in English of that same linguistic feature. Asexual, meaning without sex, for example. So, a koinonados, meaning not common. In the context of the Old Testament, It means that the name of Yahweh is not to be communicated in the sense that it is not to be shared with people other than the children of Israel, as Yahweh is exclusively the God of Israel. So where it's the incommunicable name, that doesn't mean it's the inutterable or not speakable name. That means it's just incommunicable to the other races that it should not have been shared with them. Because that makes it profane. That makes something which is separate, which is holy, which is sanctified. And it makes it profane when you mistreat it in that manner. When you share the name of Yahweh with aliens. Chinamen, niggers, whatever, Mexicans, whatever, they're not to have that name. Speaking of the law, by which the children of Israel knew the name of Yahweh, we read in the 147th Psalm, a Psalm which is attributed, something which I've only recently noticed, is attributed to the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. He shows his word unto Jacob, his statutes and his judgments unto Israel. He has not dealt so with any nation, and as for his judgments, they, meaning the other nations, have not known them. Praise ye Yahweh. We also read in the law, in Leviticus chapter 22, from verse 32, neither shall you profane my holy name. The children of Israel were to be a separate people, and only they were to have his name, to keep it holy. Neither shall you profane my holy name, but I will be hallowed, or sanctified, among the children of Israel. I am Yahweh, which hallow you, or who sanctifies you. Yahweh sanctifies Israel. Israel keeps Yahweh holy by not sharing his name and his laws with the heathens, with the other nations. Yahweh being hallowed among the children of Israel, they can indeed share his name with one another. And the Jews are just liars. They're liars every single time. Now Solomon speaks in reference to the result of the idolatry of the people. Moreover, this was not enough for them, that they erred or wandered in the knowledge of God. But whereas they lived in the great war of ignorance, the great war of ignorance that we are still fighting today, (laughs) those so great plagues called they peace. It should be absolutely clear when we look around us that the Great War of Ignorance is still being fought to this very day, as most supposed Christians are actually committing idolatry and even celebrating idolatry. And not only celebrating idolatry, but celebrating what Paul of Tarsus described as the punishment for idolatry, which is sodomy, in Paul's words. Or miscegenation, here in the words of Solomon, as we shall see. Everything which the ancient children of Israel had done to sin against Yahweh, they did in a wayward pursuit of the peace of men. The acceptance of the other races and their gods always leads to miscegenation. As we see in Exodus chapter 34, where the word of Yahweh says, for thou shalt worship no other god. For Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they go a-whoring after their gods, and do sacrifice unto their gods. And one calls thee, and you eat of his sacrifice. And you take of their daughters unto thy sons, and their daughters go a-whoring after other after their gods, and make thy sons go a whoring after their gods. Much earlier, the ruler of Shechem had tried to make peace with Jacob with the offer of a covenant of miscegenation in Genesis chapter 34. And he said, But in this will we consent unto you. If you will be as we, that every male of you be circumcised, then we will give our daughters unto you, and we will take your daughters, to us, and we will dwell with you, and we will become one people. So with that, the ancient Canaanite way of peace is made manifest, that there may be peace if all people worship the same gods and mix their races with one another. That peace is not peace, as Solomon says here, he calls it a great war of ignorance. And we are fighting that war, those of us who understand these scriptures. So, thinking that his words would prevail with Jacob, we read further in that same chapter of Genesis. And Hamor and Shechem his son came unto the gate of their city and communed with the men of their city, saying, These men, meaning Jacob, and his sons, are peaceable with us. Therefore, let them dwell in the land and trade therein. For the land, behold, it is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters to us for wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only herein will the men consent unto us for to dwell with us, to be one people, if every male among us be circumcised, as they are circumcised. Now, this was the idea that the men of Shechem had, the leaders, it wasn't the idea that Jacob had, shall not their cattle and their substance and every beast of theirs be ours. So they're basically offering to become circumcised for the hope of gain. Only let us consent unto them that they will dwell with us. With that, it is evident that for the hope of profit in merchandise, The Canaanites were accustomed to making such pacts with outsiders. Much later, when the children of Israel were about to be taken into Assyrian captivity for their sins, In the punishments which Yahweh had pronounced upon them for having accepted the gods of the aliens and seeking peace with them through trade, we read in Hosea chapter 2 in reference to Israel, for she did not know that I gave her corn and wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. Therefore will I return and take away my corn in the time thereof? and my wine in the season thereof, and will recover my wool and my flax, given to cover her nakedness. And now will I discover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, the other races, and none shall deliver her out of my hand. They were warned of punishment for this 700 years earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 29, where the word of Yahweh said, Lest there should be among you man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away this day from Yahweh your God and go and serve the gods of these other nations. Lest there should be among you a root that beareth gall and wormwood. And it comes to pass when he hears the words of this curse that he blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall have peace although I walk in the imagination of mine own heart to add drunkenness to thirst. And that's why Solomon says here that the people lived in the great war of ignorance. Those so great plagues called they peace. You're being punished. You're being punished for your sins and you don't know it. You think it's peace. I shall have peace though I walk in the imagination of mine own heart. To add drunkenness to thirst. Yahweh will not spare him. But then the anger of Yahweh and his jealousy shall smoke against that man. And all the curses that are written in this book, the curses of disobedience in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and 29, shall lie upon him, and Yahweh shall blot his name out from under heaven. You won't have any seed left on the earth in the day of Christ. They might all be resurrected, but they won't be here. They'll be blotted out. A little further on in that chapter of Deuteronomy, we see once again a reason is given for the stated incommunicable. Incommunicability of the name of Yahweh in relation to the children of Israel, where it says in verse 29 that the secret things belong unto Yahweh our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So those things were not for anybody else, just as it says a thousand years later, when that 147th psalm was written, a thousand years, almost maybe 950 years after Deuteronomy. But where Solomon had said here that the incommunicable name was bestowed upon stones and wood, it is evident that the sacred name was made common, that the vanity of the people had profaned it by sharing it where it should not have been shared, even as they themselves also took to worshipping idols and the gods of the heathen. Ecumenism, the concept that all men can worship the same gods, or the lie that all men serve the same god, is the device of rulers who seek to profit from all men in merchandise or even as merchandise. Originally, the term referred only to denominations of Christians, but has more recently been extended to Jews and their Muslim cohorts. And in the same frame of time in which the laws prohibiting fornication and sodomy were also eradicated, we see the modern expansion of this concept of ecumenism. Even later, even later than Deuteronomy. In Ezra chapter 9, upon the rebuilding of Jerusalem, the scribe had reflected on the sins of Israel and how they had failed to keep the law. And he wrote, And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken thy commandments, which thou hast commanded by thy servants the prophets, saying, The land, unto which we go to possess it is an unclean land with the filthiness of the people of the lands with their abominations, which have filled it from one end to another with their uncleanness. Now, therefore, give not your daughters unto their sons, Ezra addressing the people of his time. Neither take their daughters unto your sons, nor seek their peace or their wealth forever, that ye may be strong and eat of the good of the land and eat it for an inheritance to your children forever. But now we live in that great war of ignorance and we think we have peace and we've never had peace. Because men have not learned from the wisdom of history, neither in Ezra's time nor in our own. They were doomed to repeat the same errors. In Ezra's time, the 70 weeks kingdom of Judea had, at Jerusalem had ultimately converted all of the surrounding Canaanites and Edomites to the religion of Yahweh, which is contrary to the law, and that formed the population of Judea at the time of Christ, which also caused all of the division among the people and rulers, which is apparent in the gospel of Christ. And the bastards which resulted are now known as Jews. Christ consistently upbraided them for hypocrisy. And Paul of Tarsus later said of them, For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret, in Ephesians chapter 5, because they have always embraced all sorts of perversions And when they believe they can prevail, they force those perversions upon the rest of the society as they have done once again today. That's why we have sodomy and miscegenation in abundance in our lands. Today, the Jews once again rule over us. And once again, we have departed from our God and have taken to the ways of the heathen in the legal acceptance of both miscegenation and sodomy. The accommodation of internationalism and world trade in merchandise is once again the primary objective of society and government has been undermined and abrogated by the bankers and merchants for that purpose. So the wicked who would oppress the righteous have once again become kings and forced the righteous to worship their gods mostly niggers playing football on TV. Once again, Solomon describes some of the consequences of idolatry. In verse 23, For whilst they slew their children in sacrifices, or used secret ceremonies, or made revelings of strange rites, and the word for sacrifices, the plural form of telete, is initiations, initiations into secret societies, is the inference there. The phrase "crufia Musteria is literally secret mysteries, while the word exalis, exalis, which is literally from of another, is generally defined by Liddell and Scott as special or distinguishing. Here, we must agree with the King James translators and write strange, ex Alice, something which comes from another. But thesmos is not a right, as it's translated here. It is generally a law or ordinance, and more precisely, a law as something which has been established. The usual word for law in Greek scriptures is gnomus. And gnomus originally and primarily means a feeding place or pasture in that sense. I believe that the word became used to describe law as law is a necessity in the sustaining of a people So the idea of feeding the people with the word of God is teaching them the law, and you're feeding them, you're feeding the sheep. So the concept of gnomus is directly connected to the demands of Christ to feed my sheep. So to distinguish Thesmos from gnomus, as well as for our other reasons, the final phrase of this verse may be translated more literally rather than or made revelings of strange rites it should be translated or leading frenzied festivals or leading frenzied festivals and and when i made my notes i actually left the phrase out i'm sorry i forgot to translate Exalis and Thesbos or leading frenzied festivals of strange ordinances. And I don't know how I missed that, but that's okay. It was quite a bit of preparation in few, in few hours this afternoon. So the end of that, where it says, or made revelings of strange rites, it should be, or leaving frenzied festivals of strange ordinances, like these things were brought in by Israelites from these foreign tribes, and, and they started practicing them. That's all. The Bacchic orgies and other rites of the Greek, pagan religions certainly can be described as frenzied festivals. Earlier, and, and even the Greeks, to the Greeks they were originally strange because the Greeks themselves attest that these things came from Egypt. And that that's how the Greeks started practicing them. The word of Dionysius, the 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 the, the um the rituals of Dionysius and, and these other foreign practices that the greeks had picked up they didn't devise most of them they got them from older sources either in palestine or in egypt or in mesopotamia earlier in the discourse on idolatry in wisdom we discussed child sacrifice in the ancient world and compared it to the abortion clinics of the modern world while in the ancient world men drank the blood of slaughtered infants as Solomon had also attested, today they consume that blood in other ways and deceive others into consuming it through the the so-called health and beauty products and vaccines and other supposed medicines. We also discussed the orgiastic rituals of ancient pagans and how men from the temples went so far as sending out rape parties to abuse men or women which they encountered in the roads and in the fields of the countryside. The sacred rites of such perverts have never ended, although they are still often secretive, as they were also among the Greeks and in ancient Mesopotamia. Now Solomon continues to describe the consequences of idolatry which should also resonate with some of our own friends listening today. But I will not elaborate as to why. And in verse 24, we read, They kept neither lives nor marriages any longer undefiled, but either slew one another traitorously or grieved him by adultery. Now, that pronoun him in the end of the verse should simply be another reference to one another, a man or a woman. So, while infidelity and murder are sins, infidelity and the murder of one's own husband or wife are also among the consequences of idolatry. The punishments for idolatry. Even in first century Rome, marriage came to be of little regard, and husbands and wives were often divorced so that others could be married, often for more advantageous political arrangements. And later in Roman history, divorce was often casual. But sometimes there was even murder, where divorce was inconvenient, and the treachery of men such as Henry VIII was not novel in the 16th century. According to more than one Roman historian, the emperor Nero had five wives, but the fourth wife was a castrated young boy, and the fifth wife was a former adult male slave. So he had five wives, but... I really don't know how many real wives he may have had. I think that one wife, Papahia, was actually a Jewess, an Edomite Jewess. That's beside the point. That's, that, that's not really speculation. There are sources for it, but they're not entirely reliable or corroborated. Let's put it that way. Here, adultery is not an accurate translation as words are typically translated in scripture or grieved one another, it should say. If I were to retranslate the verse, I didn't retranslate this verse. I guess I was pressed for time. I apologize. it says that they grieved one another by adultery. The verb is nothuo, and the corresponding noun Nathos is translated as bastard in Hebrews chapter twelve, as opposed to the word huios or son. The Greek in Greek the opposite of Nathos is Ganasius, an adjective formed from the word Genea or race, which means to be of the race, that is to say, to be a true-born son. Solomon had mentioned such bastards earlier in Wisdom chapter 4, where he wrote, But the multiplying brood of the ungodly shall not thrive, nor take deep rooting from bastard slips, nor lay any fast foundation. In part 7 of our commentary on Wisdom, titled The End of the Wicked, We noted, in part, that here the wicked are described as having neglected the righteous. So it is apparent that the wicked men which Solomon, the ungodly men, actually, which Solomon is describing, are men of his own race who have turned their backs on their own kind. The surrounding context of that verse supports our assertion In chapter 4 of Wisdom, and later in this chapter, we shall see further corroboration. That this refers to race mixing, to miscegenation. But these are not the only sins to which idolatry and the worship of kings shall lead, as Solomon continues. And he says, in verse 25 of Wisdom, chapter 14. And I'll read 25 and 26 together, but then I will translate 25 and 26 together also. So that there reigned in all men without exception, blood, manslaughter, theft, and dissimulation, corruption, unfaithfulness, tumults, perjury, disquieting of good men, forgetfulness of good turns, defiling of souls, changing of kind, that's important, Changing of kind, right there. Disorder in marriages, adultery, and shameless uncleanness. And here, once again, the translations are not absolutely literal, and I would make several changes, so I'm going to translate it for myself. For all hold promiscuously. Blood and murder. Theft and guile. Confusion of good things, forgetfulness of grace, defilement of lives, corruption of race, where the King James translation has changing of kind. The words, which is genesis, origin, or race, in this context it must be race, You can't change your origin or your genesis, but there are ways through fornication that you can change the race of your nation when it, through the want of trade and the lust of material gain, joins itself to other nations as the sons of Shechem attempted to coerce the sons of Israel to do. Ganesios. An alage, an alage is a change of something, it's a turning of something. And it's a turning of race here, it's corruption of race. Disorder of marriages, adultery and licentiousness, which the King James translated as shameless uncleanness. Now, adultery in a sense is moikia, and as I've, I've explained many times before, moikia could refer to, and it was referred to. It 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 was used by the Greeks to refer to race mixing, but it can also refer to the mixing of blood within a race, and and in other words, adultery in that sense because it confuses the bloodlines within the race if you don't know who the fathers of the children are. So, there's two senses in which adultery is used throughout the New and Old Testaments, one of race mixing and one of just confusion of the blood within the race. That's because moikaia comes from a Greek verb, megnumi, and megnumi means to mix. And the Greeks use that in the sense of confusion in the mixing of the, the the families of their own nation through adultery. But they also used it of race mixing with outside races. And it was it it was sincerely condemned. In either case it was condemned the act of adultery by the Greeks. So this translation that I've offered here of these two verses is absolutely literal. And we see further references to miscegenation, which is the pollution of one's race in the creation of bastards that is so clearly described in the earlier chapters of wisdom as the end of the ungodly. Those who would turn their backs on their own God and people This is the end of idolatry, and Solomon now concludes, For the worshipping of idols not to be named is the beginning, the cause, and the end of all evil. The reference of idols not to be named, or the reference to, I should say, idols not to be named, is in keeping with the commandment and law found in Exodus chapter 23, where it reads from verse 13, and in all things that I have said unto you, be circumspect, and make no mention of the name of other gods, neither let it be heard out of thy mouth. As we have already mentioned, Paul of had made a very similar analogy in Romans chapter 1, where at first he had chastised the Romans for forsaking the truth of God and turning it into a lie turning it into idolatry. So just as Solomon has done here, Paul asserted that infidelity in marriage and sodomy rather than race mixing is a punishment from God as the inevitable result of idolatry. Of course, just because Paul illustrated or, or I should say more fully, because he does mention fornication, which, which I will mention later, just because Paul more fully illustrated one outcome and Solomon another does not mean that one or the other are not true, as in fact, both are true, that fornication, miscegenation, and sodomy are both the inevitable consequences of idolatry. So, just as Solomon did here, Paul went on to give his own list of resulting sins at the end of Romans chapter 1 and said, according to the King James Version, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, because the Romans had the truth of God and changed it into a lie, unlike the heathens of Solomon's time, who were never supposed to have the truth of God, but the Israelites did, and they chose instead. To commit the idolatry of kings, the idolatry of heathens of the heathens, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to perhaps kill your own wife, beat her to death right in front of your child. God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful proud boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. So while Solomon here did not mention sodomy, he described miscegenation. And where Paul mentioned sodomy by naming fornication among the other resulting sins, he also meant miscegenation, which is one manner in which he used the same term in some of his other epistles. So, it is also very likely that while Paul chose to use as an example of the result of idolatry, a problem which was manifesting itself in Rome at his very time, because it was, as Tacitus inferred, there certainly was a sodomite problem in Rome in the first century, and we see that in the life of Nero, that, that he married a young boy that he had castrated as his fourth wife, and then he married a freedman of his own slaves as his fifth. I'm sorry, I called it his fifth wife. But in fact, as it's recorded by the historians, Nero played the role of the bride, and the freedman played the role of the groom, at the wedding, at Nero's fifth wedding. So his fifth wife was a husband, maybe. (laughs) Nero didn't live much longer after that. (laughs) So Paul chose to use an example, the result of idolatry, of the result of, of idolatry, a problem which was manifesting itself in Rome at his very time. But it is also likely that his inspiration for his for his discourse in Romans chapter 1 was found here in the wisdom of Solomon. <clears throat> this is the result of idolatry, and especially of the idolatry of kings. When men are compelled to do the bidding of the kings, the king makes his own laws amenable to the increase of his own empire. Miscegenation, sodomy, and all other sins are the inevitable outcome of the sentiment which Solomon attributed to the wicked at the beginning of this work. Let our strength be the law of justice. So it was in the ancient Near East, so it was in Rome, and so it is today. Sooner or later, man must realize that only Christ can be king, and until then, man shall always be enslaved as the willing servants of sin. We will leave the rest of Solomon's conclusion here in the last four verses of this chapter of wisdom for the next presentation in this commentary on the wisdom of Solomon. Yahweh God be willing. I just couldn't get it. I couldn't get everything I needed to say into this one, so as the subject turns to the mercy of God in chapter 15, I thought I would lead the last of the discussion on the consequences of idolatry until then, and perhaps it may just be a summary. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Good night.